Hello and welcome to the podcast Shedding Candlelight on Cryptids, Hauntings, Mythology, and more. If it is weird, we are talking about it. This is your sleepy insomniac host, Lidana. I have been in a funk almost all year. There's just some weird mojo clinging to the atmosphere. It's icky and strange and I don't like it. And while I was lamenting about how much I don't like it, I was reminded of an incident from when I was 13 or 14. I was in this car and there must have been a bench seat or something in the front because I was in the shotgun seat and there was this boy in the middle and I don't remember what he was doing. Probably nothing. Sometimes I have like sensory overload and touch can be a real issue for me. So this kid was probably just existing in a space that was way too close to my own. But he said to me, you know what you remind me of? One of those people who are always saying, stop, I don't like it. Now, I have no idea where he came up with this line. As I've aged, I realize the reason I don't understand the words coming out of people's mouths is because I did not grow up sitting in front of a television. So I don't have those cultural references that come from movies or music or even magazines because I just didn't have access to that sort of thing. So Later in life, I'll hear something or go back and watch an old television show. And it's like, okay, now I get what this person was doing when they walked up to me and said this strange thing that I didn't respond to because I just didn't know that they were doing a cheeky little bit from a movie or quoting a song lyric. So anyway, this boy is myth for whatever reason. And I just remember a lot nodding like, yeah, exactly. I'm glad you get the fact that I don't like anything that's happening right now. You are in my personal space and I don't like it. This issue that I have with that is why I do not go to concerts and I avoid crowds at all cost. To me, more than five people in a room is a madhouse. I don't like it. I need my space. I need to be able to breathe. And you know what else I don't like? Zombies. That's right. I am not on the zombie train. I don't like most of the shows. I cannot get excited about a zombie movie. It might be because I heard a podcast once that convinced me the zombie apocalypse can happen. And to be quite honest with you, I think it's probably already begun. So yeah, if you cannot tell, zombies bring out this bad, pessimistic side of me. And because of that, I nearly skipped today's show topic. It's a little bit of a bait and switch. It draws you in with some original vampire talk, and then it throws a curveball and you find yourself in zombie territory. And that is just not a place any of us need to be. However, I stuck with it. And the Vricolacus did deliver on all of my wildest vampire dreams. But before we get into that, I need to make a very important announcement on behalf of Stitcher. My stomach is getting ready to growl. I'm really sorry. I've been up for like 75 hours <laughs> and sometimes I forget to eat. 
Um, if you listen to any of your podcasts on the Stitcher platform, they have sent out an email asking podcasters to announce that Stitcher will be going away in August of 2023. So please, if you are using that platform, which half of my listeners are, then start trying out some different podcast players. I know there's iHeart, Apple, and a whole bunch of others. If you like a video podcast, I do have video up on Spotify and YouTube. I even have a Patreon with bonus videos. Here is the deal though. I told you this year has been rough. I set a deadline to be over my mental malady by like September. So October, November, you can expect better things from me. Maybe call it January just to give me time to really shake off this funk, but I promise I will shake it off. Everything will be bright, sunny, rainbows and butterflies. Until then, whatever expectations you have of my Patreon, lower it like tenfold. And then if you still want to join, feel free. I'm behind getting bonus videos added. I have some recorded. I just haven't been able to do anything with them yet because I am about a month behind on the manuscript that I am working on right now. And that book has to come first. My editor already gave me a very generous extension. And once I get through this book and it's off into her capable hands, I will be able to do something special for you guys. Like maybe I won't cry in a Patreon video because that'll be novel. Writer days are coming. We're all dealing with our own stuff and whatever is happening with you, you are not alone. Julie will come to those of us who seek it. And I really hope that my podcast is a little bright spot in your day because honestly, recording this and talking to you guys makes me happy. It's like I'm in a room full of people and yet I'm totally alone. Best scenario ever. In 2016, the Spanish scholar Alvaro Garcia Morin wrote that from the standpoint of a Western European during the early 1700s to the early 1800s, Dracula, without a doubt, should have been Greek. This is because the Vericolacus is believed by many scholars to be the earliest tell of the vampiric kind. This undead creature of Greek folklore gets its name from the Bulgarian word varkolak, with other versions or forms of this word also being found in the Slavic and Serbian languages, as well as Russian, Lithuanian, and so forth. These words are all very similar in both spelling, pronunciation, and meaning. In Bulgarian, vak or rak means wolf, and draka means strand of hair. And in this particular case, it specifically means having the hair of a wolf. Now, while I most certainly butchered all of those pronunciations, I can correctly pronounce the original intent of the Bulgarian word varkalak. It stands for werewolf. And according to Wikipedia, the word still has that meaning in modern Slavic languages today, as well as similar meanings in Romanian. So 
why are we calling the Vrikolakas a vampire when the word comes from one that means werewolf? I am so glad you asked because when I scratched the surface on this topic, I really was inclined to just leave it alone because this feels like leprechauns all over again. The waters are muddy, everything is open to interpretation, and you're getting ready to find out that the Vrikolakas has a lot in common with what we consider a zombie. So just like the leprechaun, defining what the Vrikolakas is seemed to really depend on which school of thought you want to be a part of. In things like this, I really do not enjoy gray areas. I like a more cut and dry scenario, such as the Deridua. There was no question about how she came to be or what she was, but with generalized words such as leprechaun and brikolakas, you get all of the conflicting versions because the words are part of the lexicon and people adapt them for whatever might be happening in the world, or at least they're part of it. As folks travel to different regions, they carry their folklore with them and it gets mingled with the folklore in the location they travel to. And then hundreds of years later, I'm complaining about the lack of consistency on a podcast that I'm not consistently posting episodes to. So here's how I finally put all of this into perspective for my whiny, I don't like anything self. I was out with my sister-in-law recently, and she was asking me about a particular berry, this fruiting bush that I was able to tell her all about and how she could eat it, but I could not for the life of me remember the name. I recalled a common name, but if you forage at all, you know the danger of using common names. Simply put, what people in one region call a plant could be the same common name used to identify a completely different plant somewhere else. So it's best to use the long, hard to remember scientific names, or at the very least, make sure the information you're getting about a plant or a berry is coming from someone in the region where you located said plant or berry. The same can be said for the common folklorish monster names such as Leprechaun and Vrikolakis. So we are now covering today's topic because of my newfound perspective and being quite intrigued by the potential of the Vrikolakis being the earliest known vampire. So let's get into the meat of this lore because one glaringly obvious difference between the Vrikolakis and what we today consider a vampire is that the Vrikolakis doesn't always drink blood. It eats flesh, most particularly the liver. Now, I did not see anyone expound on why this creature would choose to eat the liver. So let me fill you in. It's good for you. Tons of vitamins. It's great for your reproductive organs. It gives you a nice, healthy glow. Unless you're a liver-eating vampire-zombie-werewolf hybrid, then you might have a bit of a struggle with the complexion, but you'll still be super healthy. During the early 1700s, the Slavic vampire was relatively unknown in the West. 
However, from all the way back in the 1600s, the Greek Vrigalakis had been a recurring presence in theological treatises, travel accounts, and books on occultism. We do know that belief in the Rikolakis predates this time, though, because while reports of this creature may not have been recorded until the 1600s, we know long before this time, the ancient Greeks believed that the dead were able to reanimate and exist in a state that is neither living nor dead. Evidence is found in graves dating back hundreds of years prior to our first recorded official naming of the Varicolacus. In 1645, the Greek librarian of the Vatican, Leo Aletius, wrote about the Varicolacus. In 1657, the writings of Father Francois Ricard confirmed stories of the Vricolacus, and in 1718, a French traveler named Joseph Piton de Tournefort wrote about witnessing a suspected Vricolacus being exhumed and slain on the Greek island of Mykonos in 1701. It's at this point in history, as we move into the 18th century, that the Greek Vrikolakis becomes known as the equivalent of the Slavic vampire, as set forth or proven out by the work of Johann Henrik Zedler during 1732 to 1754. I am not going to attempt to pronounce the name of his universal lexicon, but you guys can look that up if you feel so inclined. During the time of his writing in the 1700s, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings throughout Eastern Europe. Very frequently, people were being exhumed from their graves, staked, mutilated, having all manner of things done to them in order for the people in these areas to feel like they were making a difference in the vampire population. I mean, clearly it was out of control. People are dropping dead left and right, and it has absolutely nothing to do with plagues or unsanitary conditions. It's a monster. It has to be the cannibalistic werewolf lookalike zombie vampire hybrid. And we know that for a fact because even government officials were in on this grave desecration craze. They were hunting and staking vampires. Very important work just the same as it was important for them to hunt and persecute witches, which they had been doing in that part of the world since the 1500s. I for sure would have been burned at the stake if I was alive back in those days. And if not, I would be throwing a party and pointing Brigolacus graves out left and right. Yep. That one over there, saw him last night knocking on my door. I mean, being undead is different than being alive. So how guilty would you feel about spearheading the mutilation of a body if doing so meant you would be saving a living person from being murdered? You guys write in and tell me your thoughts. Would you rile up the villagers to get them off your back or just not get involved? 
In all honesty, I think I would probably be inclined not to get involved because that's literally my MO. I don't want the drama and I don't even care if it's about me. Just keep it moving. But if an actual living person was being drug away to be tortured and killed, then I would definitely come out of my hiding spot and tattle on the Vrikalakas. But yet another way that we know the Vrikalakas is the real deal is that during the 1700s, when all this vampire hunting craze was going down, we were in what history calls the Age of Enlightenment. Yep, people were becoming so aware and they were developing so much understanding that belief in most folkloric legends went away. People were standing around going, oh, fooey, that's not true. It's just an old wives' tale, something cooked up to scare children. Adults don't believe in this kind of nonsense. We're men and women of science and reason. We are enlightened, except the belief in vampires dramatically increased during this time. People were so convinced the Varigalakas was real that mass hysteria spread throughout Europe. The real panic began in 1721 with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia. Then, between 1725 to 1734, there was another outbreak of vampire attacks in the Habsburg monarchy, and from there, it continued to spread. I did look to see where this monarchy was located geographically, but alas, I came up short. There was unification in 1804 as the Austrian Empire, but that's a bit later in time from when this great vampire controversy is happening. So I don't know if you do great, please share with the rest of us. Until then, we will move on to the first officially recorded vampire case. A Serbian man named Peter Blagojevic died at the age of 62, but after his death, he returned home, knocked on his own door, and asked his son for food. His son refused to feed his dead dad, and the following day, the son was found dead. Peter, the dad, then returned and attacked some of the other neighbors, all of whom died of blood loss. In another famous case from this time period, another Serbian man named Milos, who was an ex-soldier turned farmer, alleged that he had been attacked by a vampire. This attack occurred years before his death, and one day when he was out haying his field, he passed away. After he was buried, people in the surrounding area also began to die. It was then that everyone began to believe for Milos's account of having been attacked by a vampire because now it was widely believed that Milos himself was Brikolakas and he had returned to prey on the neighbors. These two accounts were well-documented because government officials examined the bodies wrote case reports, and published books about these vampires throughout Europe. 
there was even another infamous Serbian legend about a vampire who lives in a water mill and kills and drinks blood from the millers. In 1751, French theologian and scholar Dom Augustine Calmet published a comprehensive treatise called Treatise on the Apparitions of Spirits and on Vampires or Revenants. This work investigated and analyzed the evidence for vampirism. Numerous readers, including both a critical Voltaire and numerous supportive demonologists interpreted the treatise as claiming that vampires did indeed exist. But all in all, the 18th century hysteria that linked the Slavic vampire to the original Rikolakis continued for at least a full generation. What's commonly referred to as this 18th century vampire controversy ended in Austria when Empress Maria Theresa sent her personal physician, Gerard van Swieten, to investigate the claims of vampiric entities. He concluded that vampires did not exist. So the empress took his word as the gospel, and she passed laws prohibiting the opening of graves and the desecration of bodies. Other European countries then followed her lead. But alas, big government did not strip the vampire from folklore. In fact, belief in the Regalakis was still alive and well in Greece during World War II, which was from 1939 to 1945. Inside of that time period, there was the Great Famine, which was from 1941 to 42. During this time, about 300,000 Greeks starved to death. Graveyards were so overfilled that many families were forced to bury their loved ones outside of the cemeteries. Now, this is important because we're going to get into how to keep your loved one from becoming a Varikalakis later, and one way is to bury them on consecrated ground. This typically being the ground inside the big cemeteries attached to churches, and there are many beings or creatures that this holy ground is supposed to thwart. Superstition is powerful, guys. You can only imagine if you held these beliefs or these fears, how that would weigh on you during this time in the Great Famine when so many people were dying. Officials began gathering up all the corpses and just dumping them in mass graves. But if these mass graves were on unconsecrated ground, people believed and feared their loved one would come back as Avrikolakis. So individual families took preemptive steps to prevent their loved ones from becoming any form of a vampire. They would do things like behead the corpse before it was hauled away. If you guys watch a lot of true crime as I do, which is one of the reasons I'm having this weird, funky, bad mojo, atmospheric situation. 
And I've recently started taking a break from all things true crime, whether it's fake kidnappings or the real hard stuff. But anyway, we know for a fact that certain behaviors are learned. And every time I hear about atrocious things becoming normalized, I wonder about the studies proving learned behaviors can be passed down. Studies like the ones I mentioned in the Patreon that I did about fear, where learned behavior is passed down generational lines, even absent of a teacher of said behavior, we're talking generations later, or even a kid never met their parent, and yet they still fear the same things or touch their nose in the same way, you know, whatever. Um, but these real life psychopaths who are killing and mutilating and just doing these truly outrageously horrible things, I look back on these, you know, vampire craze types of events in history, which happen all over the world. And I wonder how much of some kind of weird inherited trait that makes people do, is it like this, this weird thing that someone did and it's just sort of like in the person? I don't know how to articulate that properly, but I mean, it's kind of like, why would people think to set someone on fire? I think it's because their ancestors burned witches. And as an inherently evil person, that was the sadistic thing they decided to do because somewhere in their history, you know, they were attached to like this, the witch trials or whatever. Anyway, that is my theory. I'm sticking to it. I need a lot of puppy videos right now, guys. Uh, I'm not okay. <laughs> and yes, I know I write thrillers, but real life is so much worse. Probably why I'm jumping into writing fantasy books right now. I just need a break like this added layer of separation from reality. Anyway, belief in the Rikolakis has by now died out. Not so many people, even Greeks, recognize the name, but only because people started using the Slavic name. That's the point many scholars have made and why they say the Rikolakis is the original vampire. He was simply rebranded during this vampire craze that happened in the 18th century. So what is the Rikolakis? What were the original beliefs and how do you become one? Maybe some of you are really ambitious and you are dying to know. Others probably want to know exactly how to kill this thing if it knocks on your door asking for food. Here's tip number one, never ever open your door on the first knock. The Rikolakis is known to leave its grave, roam about the countryside or the cityscape, causing epidemics, engaging in poltergeist style activity. I mean, every single other creature you've ever heard about came from the Vrikolakis. It is the OG of everything. I bet there's an account of it hoarding pots of gold and burying them at the end of rainbows. So this OG 
roams around and the creature will knock on doors. It will call out the names of the people living inside. And if they answer it, they open the door for it. They die within days. And guys, it isn't just that they're dead. They come back as a Vrikalakas. However, the Vrikalakas will only knock once. If no one answers, it passes on by. So the whole thing about a vampire having to be invited inside, it clearly comes from this. Only today we pretend that you can open the door, talk to them, just do it without inviting them inside and everything will be fine. Not so, says the Rikolakis. You opening that door and acknowledging the undead thing on your doorstep is invitation enough. It will enter and one of the ways it subdues its victims is by sitting on them. It crushes or suffocates them while they're sleeping. We all probably know people who have felt that pressure on their chest, or maybe you've experienced it yourself because sleep paralysis is very common, but a lot of people swear that they see an entity on them. So it could be a mare, an incubus, or maybe it's the Rikolakis probably in a future Patreon, I'm going to tell you guys about the creature that caught on my bed. And I was so tired that I was like, I like, whatever, I I'm not getting up. I'm not doing anything. You're not scaring me. I'm just, I'm way too tired to deal with this. Um, so anyway, another non-zombie vampiristic trait is that the body of a Rikolakis does not decay. Instead, they swell like a tick, becoming very, very large, gaining a drum-like shape when gorged with new, fresh blood. The more the Rikolakis feeds, the stronger it becomes. And sadly, for the redheads who cannot catch a break, it is believed that many redheads are vampires. Is it because the Rikolakis is drawn to red hair and wants to have its fellow OGs look similar? You'll have to ask the next one you see to find out. If the tick-like gorged body doesn't clue you in to what the creature in front of you is or the red hair, the Rikolakis is also said to have a ruddy complexion and gray eyes. If you have a confirmed sighting and you'd like to unanimate the reanimated corpse instead of joining it for a plate of delicious liver, then you have to destroy its body. But this can only be done on Saturday. The rest of the week, the Varigalakis is busy, okay? He's got a lot to do. It's hard to be the original, you know? It's just tough on a vampire. But on Saturday, the Varigalakis returns to its grave for a day of much needed and much deserved rest. But if you are rude and you want to disturb its sleep, fine, go to the grave dig it up or whatever, then you do one or more of the following. 
it's your choice since you are at this point the psychopath. You impel, behead, cut into pieces, cremate, nail the body to the coffin, put a millstone on its head or its chest. Basically, you're just weighing it down so it's undead but can't get out of the grave to hurt anyone, which totally sounds humane. After you do one or more of these things, congratulate yourself. You've freed the Rikolakis of its living death or trapped it in a dark and lonely place for all of eternity, saving future victims who will never thank you because they don't know that they should. If you are not into desecration, you can do a couple of other things preemptively to ensure your loved ones cannot turn into a Brikolakis to begin with. In the 1850s, Greeks were burying anyone they suspected would return as a vampire on an island off the coast of Lesbos. I guess this means vampires can't swim. I don't know. I just want to go to this island. You can also put an object spelled with protective magic in your loved one's grave. Sometimes they'll like put things in their mouth and, and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, the person might still turn into a vampire, but the idea is that this charm will occupy them enough that they won't harm the living. They'll just be weak and undead. And yes, I am begrudgingly telling you these things because I am very solidly on the side of vampires here, but if you really are against your dead loved one being reanimated, you can bury them upside down or even place earthly objects such as skies or sickles near their grave to satisfy any demons entering the body or to appease the dead so they won't want to leave their grave. My husband listens to the show, so I'll put in my request now. I do not want a sickle. I want books, maybe a deck of cards, some crossword puzzles, and chocolate. Also, I would be really stoked if you came back as a vampire, a modern one, not a swelling tick kind, just for clarification. And speaking of our more modern history, people began putting wax crosses and other things in the graves of their loved ones to keep them from rising or to ward away evil spirits. But my personal favorite is the old sand trick. It works with poppy seeds, millet, basically any fine grained thing. What you do, you spread this on the ground around the suspected vampire's grave. Then when they climb out, ready for a fun night of knocking on doors, they see the grains and their OCD kicks in. They spend the rest of their waking hours counting the grains. What's fun about the vampire's arithmomania is that apparently they count at a rate of only one grain per year. So they're going to be busy a while. There's also a Chinese version of this that says if a vampire comes across a bag of rice, he is then compelled to stop and count every grain in the bag. So think about that before you grab your axe and millstones and head out to the graveyard. Take rice and sand, bury your loved ones on a beach. I'm telling you, vampires are not the problem. Humans are. 
So how exactly does one become a Brigalacus? Husband, listen up. It's traditionally believed that you become an undead bloodsucker after death because you lived an immoral life, which is fun because morals change over the years, like the people in prison for marijuana charges right now, but yet it's once again become legal. However, they are still sentenced to a life of being a Vrikalakas. <laughs> In 1869, Henry Fanshawe Tozer wrote that the principal causes which change persons into regalacus after death are excommunication, heinous sins, the curse of parents, and tampering with magic arts. He says that the excommunication is the most common and the most important because it dates back to very early times, but at least he did allow for parents to be blamed. I mean, it would almost be sacrilege not to. It is also believed that you would face the fate of becoming a Regalacus if you dared to be buried on unconsecrated ground, or... If you ate the meat of a sheep which had been wounded by a wolf or a werewolf, because people believed that if a werewolf was killed, it became a powerful vampire, retaining its wolf-like fangs, hairy palms, and glowing eyes. Thus, we come full circle. The Vrigalakis translates to werewolf because while it lived... It was indeed a werewolf, and in death, it lives on as a vampire with red hair. One who is the original everything, you name it, the Vrikalakis did it first. I do apologize to redheads the world over. I think you are all descendants of royalty, and because you're so pale, you probably should be eating liver. The drinking blood is a little gross, but what are you going to do? I can't help you with the blood, but you can help me by liking, subscribing, telling your friends, all of the things that you social people do, do those things. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find me in those places using some form of Lidana or Lidana author. My website is LidanaBooks.com, and I have just released my latest thriller to rave reviews. Sierra is a standalone book, but it does end on a deliciously satisfying cliffhanger. My email is leadonabooks at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Patreon.com forward slash leadonna. If you, you know, want to be underwhelmed, um, make sure you find a new podcast platform if you are listening on Stitcher. And that's it, guys. I will see you sometime next month. Until then, make them knock twice, especially the redheaded ones. Monsters.
my printer just came on. Uh, okay, now it's off. Great. Uh, fun living with ghost. 